0: Lord, uh, I just appreciate, Lord, that last song and and attempting to make that, all of those songs of worship, attempting to make them really just prayers and cries of our hearts. And Lord, we do want you to be, Lord, our focus, not just for the half hour or more that we're here um, sitting under your word, but Lord, we want you to be on our hearts and our minds as we we go about our day, as we make our decisions, as we deal with things that are frustrating. Lord, as we deal with things that are great, we want to be, that other song, just, I want to hear you in the rustling of the grass, Lord. And so, Lord, you've been so kind. You've given us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you've blessed us with your presence, which is just a down payment of your presence that we'll enjoy in heaven. And Lord, you overwhelm us with your presence here on the earth at times. We can only imagine what heaven is going to be. You've given us your word. You've promised us your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. And so, Lord, we pray that you would minister to us through your word this morning as you've designed things to be. Lord, that the entrance of your word would bring life, Lord, that the light of your word would shine that light onto uh, sort of the path we have to walk out this week and the weeks to follow. I pray you would encourage us in your word today. And Lord, that you would bless our fellowship, even by just gathering with others that are like-minded. There'd be this sense of encouragement, there'd be this sense of uplifting that happens within each one of us. And so we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come before you and sit and to hear from you. And we ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're in Zep- Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. We may or may not have a slide with the page number, I don't know. But if you are using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, uh, it, it will show you that page number here. But Zephaniah. A uh, minor prophet book, you may recall. We've been making our way through, looking at a bunch of these minor prophet books, and uh, we will continue to do so. But here today we bring to a close our study of the book of Zephaniah uh, that we've been looking at. Remember three sections to the book, uh, the central theme, the day of the Lord, a day of God's special intervention into the affairs of men. We spent some time talking about how the first section was God pronouncing this coming judgment. The second section, chapter two primarily, is where specific cities and specific nations are named uh, that will be receiving that judgment, including the southern kingdom of the Jewish people, the nation of Judah. And then as we come to chapter three, it takes, a, an interest. in my opinion, an interesting twist. It's not what I was expecting to read as I'm making my way through and I'm reading about this judgment. All of a sudden you come to chapter three and there's, in my opinion, this most unexpected blessing that is pronounced on the remnant of the people of Israel. And so today we, we will turn our attention to that. You may remember when we were last together, I closed out and, and I said, would it work? I, I tried a, a little hook to get you to come back next week. You know, we learn all this stuff. God's going to bring judgment. Remember, God has a purpose when he brings judgment, and that is to teach. To draw all his people back to himself. The word discipline, the, the root of the word is the word disciple. And so he has a purpose in all of these things. And I closed out with this idea of would it work? Would God's discipline that he brings upon his people, would that bring them to their senses? Would it bring them back to him? As we know that the discipline that God allowed in that story of the parable of the prodigal son, it woke him up. It brought him uh, to reality, to his, what am I doing here? Why am I involved in all of these things? The servants in my father's house have it better than I do here. I will go back to my father. I will tell him I have sinned and we'll see if he receives me. And of course, in the story of the parable of the prodigal son, he did. So God disciplines his people for a purpose. He disciplines his people to teach his people. Tragically. You have the privileged people of God, the Jewish people, the only people in all of the world that God called out for himself for a particular purpose, those privileged people of God, they abandoned that privilege. And instead of walking and following after God, they went after those things which could never fully satisfy them. I think that is a word for us. That's that's what we so often do. We go after those things that could never fully satisfy. God is still present in our lives, but he's not our primary focus. He's not our passion. And so they went after the false gods of the nations that surrounded them. They began to seek wisdom and guidance, remember, from the stars. They sought wisdom and guidance and assurance from that which was created rather than the creator, which they had the special opportunity to be in relationship. We saw that they became proud they became arrogant. They were not open to anyone teaching them or anyone correcting them. They became cruel. They became greedy. They became violent. They became lustful for gain. And we see the picture, or we have saw, seen the picture as we've been making our way through the book, of a people whose first their hearts went astray and pretty soon their lives followed thereafter. And so how important it is for us to guard our hearts And to not allow our hearts to go astray, even if the behavior that we're manifesting or showing doesn't seem like anything is different, when our hearts go astray, pretty soon our lives will follow thereafter. And that's what happened with Israel, Judah in particular. God loved them so much, however, that he would not let them remain there. I, I don't know about you, but you perhaps have had people in your lives that start getting on your nerves. All right, and if they're not family, you, I don't need to deal with you. Don't call me anymore. Has that ever happened to you? As some of us, we don't want to admit it here, because maybe the guy's on the other side of the aisle, or whatever, but they're, uh-oh, she says. <laughs> but maybe you've had a situation where someone just bugs you, and they annoy you, and they, you know, they, they're just no good to you. And so finally you say, yeah, I'm done with you. I don't need you in my life anymore. I got enough things that I can deal with. Am I the only one you're looking at me like I'm crazy? <laughs> All right, These are things that I have wrestled with in the past. And God says, now, Greg, you need, no, he's not a girl. But he said, you need to love him. You need to love them and, and all that kind of stuff. All right, And so, nonetheless, God isn't going to abandon them. He's going to keep going back to them. And he's going to do what he needs to do to bring them back to himself. That's what the book of Zephaniah is about. He loves them too much to allow them to remain in the place of disobedience and rebellion both Solomon and the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews has told us that the Lord corrects and the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. You're familiar with that verse? We read this in Proverbs chapter 3. It says, for the Lord corrects those he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. And Hebrews 12 quotes that verse as it's making its particular point. And so, Because he loved his people so much in Zephaniah's day, he was preparing to bring discipline upon them. And you remember that discipline upon them was in the form of the nation of Babylon coming against them. But it's always important for us to remember, as we read a book where the central theme is the day of the Lord or the judgment of the Lord, it's always important for us to remind ourselves, don't get so focused in on the judgment to forget the purpose of the judgment. It's important for us to recognize that God was not casting off his people he was not abandoning his people that he had a purpose even in the most difficult of potential circumstances that they were about to face and that he was going to use those difficult circumstances to accomplish his purpose and so again would it work well let's turn to chapter 3 to take a look chapter 3 verse 1 we'll read again we looked at it last week but it says woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. You may remember I pointed out last time. In the context, you're you're wondering, you know, are we still talking about some of the surrounding foreign nations? We're going to see. We're talking about Jerusalem. Woe to her who is rebellious. Woe to her who is defiled. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy, and they do violence to the law. Look at the things said, again, about the nation of of Judah. Rebellious and defiled. Some versions say filthy and polluted, which almost always is a reference to idolatry. It says in verse 2 that they would not listen and that they would not be corrected. It also says in verse 2 that they trusted in their false gods and that rather than drawing near to the true God— They drew near to these made-up gods, those that weren't actually even gods. It says in the passage that her leaders became corrupt, secretly devouring others for their own gain, that those that were charged with spiritually leading the people profaned the truth, profaned that which was holy, twisted the word of God to accomplish their own purposes. He says in the verse there, and we looked at all this last time, But he says that they became fickle, treacherous, unprincipled men, that they became reckless and disrespectful of God's word. You may remember I used the word, or it's used sometimes, the word frothy, and that is of little substance. And these were their spiritual leaders. These were their political leaders. The state of the nation of Judah, the state of the city of Jerusalem in particular, was in a very bad place. And frankly, that should be sobering, I think, to you and I as we read this passage. I think it's a dangerous thing whenever we read the scripture and we begin to think of those people. Oh, this is a good message for my kids. This is a great message for that lady from church. When we read the word of God or we sit in a sermon and we begin to think about others, maybe it is for others. But I think it's a good time for you to pull back and say, okay, but first, how is this for me? And what does the Lord want to speak to me? And so certainly we want to learn the material that we're, we're looking at. We want to learn the context to which it is applied and all of that time. But at the same time that we're reading God's word, we want God's word to be reading us as well. And so as we read this here about Judah and their disobedience and all of those other things, I, the questions that we should be asking is this, am I obeying the word of God? Am I obeying God's voice as he is leading me and directing me and trying to correct me? Am I primarily drawing near to God? Or like the people of Judah, am I primarily drawing toward those other things that were created by man? Am I receiving God's correction? Am I repenting? That's what agreeing, you know what, you're right, Lord. I agree with you. I repent. Are we doing that? Or is this stuff sort of just coming in and then going right back out? It would be a serious mistake for us to read this material and only think, man, those Jews, man, they were a mess. The reality is I'm a mess. You're a mess. No offense. There's so much that God needs to change in us and transform in us and do a work within us. And so we don't want to miss what God has for us. As we said, it said, the Lord, I said this earlier, the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. And when necessary, he will keep ratcheting up that discipline in our lives until finally he gets our attention, finally till the discipline accomplishes what it was purposed to accomplish, that is to teach us, to change us, to bring us back to himself. So verse 5 in our passage, it says this, it says, Now the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations, their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me, you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all of their deeds corrupt. So Zephaniah begins that little section there, and he says, the Lord within her is righteous. In the context, remember, we were talking about verses 2 through 4, spiritual leaders, political leaders uh, in the society. Their leaders had failed them. Their leaders were unjust. Their leaders were unrighteous. But he begins verse 5, but the Lord. The Lord is within their midst. He has been just the opposite of all of those things. He had not and he would not ever fail them. And yet, they continued to go astray. And I think that makes their unrighteousness, the unrighteousness of his people, all the more criminal and all the more tragic. Is I've been right here. I've never failed you at once. I've never left you. And yet, you keep leaving me. All the more tragic. God had been nothing but good to them. And their response was to sin against them. And despite that response, he continues to remain in their midst. That blows my mind. Despite their sin, he continues to remain in their midst. Verse 5 says, the Lord within her is righteous. Again, I'm reminded of the story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. If you haven't read it and just sort of meditated on it in a while, you might want to do so. But there you have this man who, when he decides to return to his father, he, he finds that his father is running toward him. His father loved him, and our father loves us. To quote the Apostle Paul, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. That's who he is. I love that passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2, because, again, that's another one you don't expect. You expect if we are faithless, well, then he'll be faithless too. And it's just the opposite of that because he can't deny who he is. He's faithful. He loves us. And he's going to make sure we return back to him. Loving his people too much to abandon them, he continues to ratchet up his discipline. Look at verse 6. He says, I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruin. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. We've read it, so I'm going to skim. Verse 7, I said, surely they will fear me. They'll accept my correction. And then that final verse there, as we're going to see, but they would not. Or something similar to that. God had punished all of these surrounding nations, including the Jewish nation of Israel. So the the people of Judah could have said, well of course God is gonna judge all those Gentiles, but he even judged the northern kingdom of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And rather, for the people of Judah, rather than learning from the experiences of those surrounding nations, they instead adopted the ungodly practices of those surrounding nations. Proverbs 21 teaches us that the wise gain wisdom by observing the lessons that other people are learning. Specifically, it says, when a mocker is punished, the simple will gain wisdom. By paying attention to the wise, they get knowledge. The wise individual doesn't need to touch the hot stove to discover that indeed it is hot, because plenty of others have done that before them, and they can learn the lessons from what those others have gone through. Sadly, Judah would not learn the lesson that God had for them through his dealings with the nations that surrounded them. And therefore, God must ratchet up his judgment. He must judge them even more severely or discipline them even more severely. But I'll say it again, but he will not abandon them. Verse 8 goes on. He says, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth will be consumed, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove your mit- from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And so God had tried all these ways before, and there was nothing left but for the Lord to bring a day of judgment to them. Look at verse 8, look at verse 11. In both of those cases, references made to that day. Again, we're talking about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, again, is in which the Lord specifically intervenes in the affairs of men, to accomplish his purposes. We talked a lot about this in our first study in the book. It's a, a small book, but that phrase appears 11 times in the book, or the word, that day or the day of the Lord. 11 times in the book, five time, six times in chapter one, two times in chapter two, and another three or so times in chapter three. And so describing the day of the Lord The word that is used there in the verse is the word indignation. You see that there in verse 8, the word indignation. That word indignation in the Old Testament, it's synonymous with the word used in the New Testament that perhaps we're a little more familiar with, and that's the word tribulation. So the description that we have in Zephaniah to describe that day or a gathering together of the nations, a pouring out of God's burning hour, uh, anger, and the consuming of all the earth in that hour. All right, That's a description that we have in the verse that Zephaniah gave us. Again, it is a gathering together of the nations, a pouring out of God's burning anger, and the consuming or the consumption of all the earth. That parallels precisely with the book of Revelation between chapter six and chapter 19. So what Zephaniah describes in one verse or two verses perhaps in chapter three You could go to Revelation to get a much greater detail uh, between chapter 6 and chapter 19. Those chapters which speak of the judgment of the nations during the capital T, Tribulation, and specifically the latter half of the Tribulation, which is commonly called the Great Tribulation. Again, all for the purpose of restoration. I'd encourage you, if you haven't recently, read through the book of Revelation and spend some time considering what Zephaniah shares with us in just a verse. But notice in verse 9, he says, For at this time I will change the speech of the peoples, again, all for the purpose of restoration, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Different people have a different understanding of what this pure speech is speaking of. Some have suggested that, uh, in this millennial period that we're going to be talking a little bit further about, that there will be one universal language that is used in all the earth, that that'll be the pure speech. They, they see sort of a correction of Genesis chapter 11. You remember Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel and how all the different languages are spoken and it'll be restored to sort of this pure speech. It may be that. Others have suggested uh, that it may simply be referring to no longer in the mouths of people will be praise to this God and praise to that God and let's worship Baal and let's worship uh, the Ashtoreth and all of that stuff, but that there'll be a pure speech and God alone will be the one that is worshiped. I'm not sure which of the two is correct, but the verse simply says here that in that day, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Notice the word peoples there in verse nine. That speaks specifically of the Gentile peoples. The entire world will in that day worship and serve the Lord and with pure and undefiled speech call upon him and serve him with one accord. God's judgment on the nations is for a purpose. It'll bring people to the place of repentance and there will be a period of time here on the earth where the entire world, the Gentile peoples included, will... Uh, Serve the Lord with undefiled speech and serve him with one accord. It says in verse 10, it speaks of uh, even from beyond the rivers of Cush. If you were with us last week, you may remember in chapter 2, verse 12, reference was made to a judgment being poured out on the people of Cush. And here we read, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. I asked earlier, would God's judgment work? It sure seems like it did here, as people from beyond the rivers of Cush will come. That prophecy of all of these folks sort of coming back to the land and bringing uh, offering to the Lord will ultimately be fulfilled in the 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ here on the earth. But even now, ever since 1948, when the nation of Israel was rebirthed again, that's part of the reason it's so amazing to go to the nation of Israel today, And just consider where it has come in the last 70 or so years. But ever since uh, 1948, we're beginning to see the fulfillment of the rebirth of the nation of Israel and beginning to see the rebirth of people being brought back to Christ. You can't help in the context of this verse. I don't know if you've seen pictures like this. This one isn't probably the best one. Uh, But these are folks that are coming, as you can see on the airplane, from Ethiopia, Jewish people that are coming and settling in the land of Israel. They call it the Aliyah. as people from all over the nations are returning. People of Jewish uh, heritage, background, descent, religious belief are returning and setting up shop. Uh, Russia, for instance, hundreds of thousands have come from there since the 1990s. He says here in verse 11, On that day you the nation nation of Israel shall not be put to shame. So her proud and exultant leaders which led the people into sin will have been broken. It will accomplish its purpose. The judgment, God will use the judgment that came as a result of that sin. And there will be no more need for judgment, no more need for shame, no more need for suffering because they have repented. Despite all that is coming on the nation of Israel, It says in our passages, verse 12 and 13, that there will be a remnant. There will be a remnant of a humble and lowly people that will seek for their refuge in the Lord. People that will look to honor the Lord. People that will look to walk in the Lord's ways. People that will refuse to practice deceit or to give themselves to idolatry. The Lord promises and predicts this day. Now speaking of this future peace and prosperity, of the, he, he does speak of, of the millennial kingdom. Notice what it says in verse 13. He says, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. That speaks of peace. It speaks of prosperity. No need to be watching around for the enemies that are going to be coming, the, whether it be the Babylonians or some other group of people. The prophet Isaiah, he described the peace of that day a little differently, and this is how he said it. He said, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Does that seem outside of the norm of our day? Um, Yes. If that was your little child, get in here, you know, you would say. He says in verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, the snake's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Zephaniah, Isaiah, both describing the same day, that 1,000 years worth of days, the millennial kingdom. Now, I've been using a lot of terms uh, the last few days associated with what are commonly called the last day's events. The theological term that is in association with these last days is the word eschatology. And I've been kind of referencing a bunch of things over the last couple of days. The word eschatology, it literally translates as the study of last, that's it. That's kind of weird, Um, but the study of last things. And it applies not just to some of the topics and the events and the days that I've been referencing here, but it also applies to things like what happens to people when they die, that technically fits into the study of eschatology. What is is the resurrection of the dead? What does that mean and so on? And what does it look like? When does it happen? Uh, What are the days of judgment and the great white judgment versus the day of judgment and all those things, what are those things? All of those fit into the study of eschatology. But for the purpose of our study, I wanna focus for a moment on those portions of eschatology that deal with sort of the last day's events. And there's a number of terms associated with those last days events that you've probably heard about uh, or possibly have heard about. Terms like the rapture, the antichrist, the tribulation, the great tribulation, the false prophet, the beast, the millennium, the new heaven and the new earth, the bowl judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and many, many more terms. All of these apply to these last days events that the Bible gives to us. Now, the way our Bibles are written is you, you don't go to the index and say, I'd really like to read about last day's events. And it says, turn to page 500, uh, like it's some encyclopedia or something. And so what we, as we study our Bibles, we're finding information here, finding information there, and so on. Just like we saw one verse or so, one or two verses in Zephaniah, and 12 chapters in the book of Revelation. And so we read these things, we put them together to have our best understanding that we can, and as we go into some future studies, we're going to spend a little more time on some of those topics that I have just read to you, or those terms that I've just read. Today, what I want to look at more specifically is this millennium. And as I've been saying, as the word alludes, the, the millennium refers to a 1,000-year period of time. The word comes from a Latin word, the root there, mille, which means 1,000. And so, biblically, the term refers to the one thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. There's six verses in the Bible that specifically mention the length of time. Now, there's plenty of verses that talk about the millennium, but don't mention the length of time. There's six verses that specifically mention the length of time. Two, and they're mostly all found in Revelation chapter 20. Two of those verses specifically tell us. What's going to happen during that length of time? And that is that Christ is going to reign. And so Revelation chapter 24, it says this, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, They came to life, notice, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The reign of Christ, 1,000 years. Chapter 20, verse 6, also speaks of that reigning with Christ. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so a literal understanding of Revelation 20 is that immediately following which occurs in Revelation chapter 19, that immediately following the return of Christ that Satan will be bound, which is the first three verses of chapter 20. And then starting in verse four, it teaches us that Christ be a literal period of time on the earth. And they see it instead as sort of an allegory that's meant to describe a long period of of time of Christ's reigns both in heaven and in the hearts of men here on the earth there will not be a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. Those who hold this view are referred to as A-millennialist. The letter A nullifying everything that comes after the letter A. The word millennium. What's well, an atheist? They don't believe in God. The A nullifies everything that comes after it. And so the A-millennialist believes that there's not going to be a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth in parts of his people. They see it as a period of time between the two advents of Christ, his first coming and his second coming. That's not my understanding of Revelation 20, but I think good people hold that view. It's not my understanding of the passages in Zephaniah or the passages in Isaiah that I quoted earlier. The way I approach it, if God wanted to communicate a long period of time, he could have easily done that without explicitly and repeatedly mentioning the word 1000 years or the the time frame in those six verses the bible tells us that when christ returns to the earth that he's going to establish himself as king in jerusalem sitting on the throne of david in the covenant that god made with abraham we call that the abrahamic covenant god promised abraham's offspring a land a posterity and that that posterity would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Genesis chapter 12 begins that. That'll take place in the millennium. In what some have called the Palestinian covenant, God promised Israel a restoration to the land, an occupation of the land, that they would be brought out because of discipline, and that they would come back and be restored, Deuteronomy chapter 30. In the Davidic covenant, God promised Israel a king from David's line who would rule and that that king would give the nation rest from all of their enemies forever. That will be fulfilled in the millennium. At the second coming, all of these covenants are going to be perfectly and completely fulfilled as Israel is regathered from the nations. Matthew 24 says this, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elects from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. They will be converted to the Christian faith. Zechariah chapter 12, it says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they will weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The Jewish people will be permanently restored to the land under the rule of Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah chapter 9. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father prince of peace and of, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore and the zeal of the lord of hosts will perform it now a lot of people we reference the isaiah 9 passage on our christmas cards don't we you get a little christmas card no you don't get- you remember what those were? We used to send them to the friends, and they would send them back, and you'd keep track of who's sending it to you, and if you don't get one, you ain't getting one from me next year. But read the context of the whole passage. It's not just talking about Christ's first coming. It blends right into uh, his chapter his 4, tells us that, which we'll read in a second. nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth uh, the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Remember, in the Zephaniah passage, it talked about all the peoples, the Gentile peoples. Much of the verses I've been reading in this little section of our study, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." Speaking of the millennium, it'll be a period marked uh, by obedience to God and his ways. Jeremiah chapter 31, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, I'll be their God, and they will be my people. The millennium will be a time when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And both the book of Isaiah and the book of Habakkuk say that almost exactly. Isaiah 11, they shall not hurt or destroy my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's, that's the millennium. That, that is going to be a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, a time of peace prosperity, the ways of God will, be, will mark that time. Now going back to Zephaniah, speaking of that great day, he starts in verse 14, he says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you will never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast." And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Again, notice how different this chapter is from the first two chapters. All about judgment. This chapter, his judgment having accomplished his purpose. In verses 14 to 20, we we might call this the song of the restored, or at least the exhortation to the restored to sing this particular song. Verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout out, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all of your heart, he says. He promises to restore them from their enemies and their iniquities. He says, the Lord has taken away, this is verse 15, His judgments against them. He says also in verse 15 that he has cleared away their enemies. And then that the Lord himself would serve as their king and be in their midst. Verse 15, they will never again fear evil. And in light of all of those those promises, no wonder Israel is exhorted that they are to sing and to shout with joy. What are we going to do when we go to heaven? We're gonna sing all the time, is that what we're gonna do? That's exactly what you're gonna do. And you're gonna love doing it. It's just gonna be this natural cry of your heart. I don't wanna get divisive, but I was listening to the Phillies game yesterday in the car when they won, uh, shortly after winning this big game. And I like the Phillies, and so I was very happy for the Phillies. And as I was just sitting and they were interviewing people, or in my car as they were interviewing people, there was just sort of this smile that kind of went over my face. And I I felt goofy because it's a game cares kind of thing. And I felt goofy about the whole thing. But it just came out of me. Heaven's going to be a little better than that. Just a little. It's just going to naturally come out of us that we're going to want to sing these praises to the Lord. He exhorts them. He also says that they are exhorted to fear not, to not let their hands grow weak. You know, like "I, I give up kind of thing because of what was coming toward them. He says, fear not, because look beyond what's coming toward you. He says, because the Lord, verse 17, because the Lord your God is in your midst. And not only that, but it also said in verse 17, and he is uh, among them as a mighty one who will save. Now, the second thing that I notice about these verses, and I know we're getting close to the end here, is that God takes joy in his people. Isn't that something? I get it that we would take joy in him, but he tells us in verse 17 as it goes on that he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you, even you, that falls short and doesn't measure up to his standard as we've been discussing the last three weeks and as you and I are. What a profound thought that is, that God actually rejoices over his people and exalts over them with loud singing quite frankly i think i'm just going to be happy to get into heaven and yet to discover that he is happy that i got into heaven and that you got into heaven what kind of a god is this that we serve well he's one that is altogether different from you and i altogether different and so he rejoices over you even though you have fallen so short of his standard of holiness. And so because all of these things are true of him, we go back to verse 16, that is why we need not fear. And that is why our hands don't need to sort of hang down as if they are weak. And so for Israel and Judah in particular in this book, yes, there were difficult times that were ahead of them, but they were necessary times that were ahead of them. There were dark days that were looming. But beyond those dark days was a day day of glorious restoration where once more Israel would keep, verse 18, their solemn and holy assemblies, that all of those who oppressed them, verse 19, would be dealt with, that the weak and the lame would be regathered, as it also says in verse 19, and that their shame will be replaced with praise and renown, as it says. Their fortunes would be restored. There was going to be a complete turnabout for the people of God in that day. And what a glorious day that will be. Amen? Earlier, I I quoted verse 15. It says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. And I would be remiss if we closed out our time together today without making sure that each one of us here today has considered whether the Lord has done that exact same thing in your life. Has he done that in your life? Has the Lord taken away his judgments against you? Now, of course, what that means is that we first have to acknowledge that the Lord does have a judgment against us. What it means is that each of us must first acknowledge that, you know, I have fallen short of the glory of God. I have sinned. And that in sinning, I have missed the mark of God's standard of holiness that he requires of every one of us. Have you this morning acknowledged that? Have you acknowledged that you fall short? Have you acknowledged that you have sinned against the holy God? Well, the Bible says that the penalty of that sin is death. Separation from God, separation from one another. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And yet, we know that because of God's great love for us, I love that verse, Lamentations 3, because of God's great love for us, we are not consumed. We know that. We know that because of his great love for us, that his compassions will fail not. Let me read the verse. Because of the Lord's great love for us, we're not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great, O God, is your faithfulness, which is why God has given us the gift of his Son. I know it's familiar for a lot of us, but don't miss the reality of it, the the glory of it. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. The Apostle Paul said this, that God demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is the one and only way whereby those rightly deserving judgment that Zephaniah mentions, where that judgment can be taken away. To quote the Lord, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And nobody can come to the Father unless they go through me. Has the Lord taken away his judgments against you? I'd encourage you, if you're not sure, talk to somebody that brought you, and they can explain how God took away the judgment from them and how we can do the same in your life as well. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you love us. Lord, as we finish this book, we're reminded that you care so much about us that you're not going to just say, you know what? You and I are done but you're gonna continually work to bring us back to yourself. You're gonna discipline us for the purpose of teaching us. And Lord, you do that again and again, and and there are some that just reject again and again and again, and Lord, we don't wanna be like that. We wanna be a people that's continuing to hear your voice, continuing to apply your word to our lives, continuing to be refined and transformed into the image of your son, continuing to draw nearer to you And as we do that, sort of this world around us, it's present certainly so, but so much more in the background than what you desire uh, for our lives. And so bless your word. And we thank you for the gift of it. In Jesus' name, amen.